Um, there's some really sad examples of this. Um, Actually, Alan Greenspan is one of them. Alan Greenspan, anybody, can anybody remember when Alan Greenspan made his speech about irrational exuberance? In just before pocket? the biggest boom in 2000 or 1999. No, what, when? When did he talk about irrational exuberance? Yeah, it was just before the dot com boom. It was, yeah, but what, what year? Either 1999 or 2000? No, 1996. What was that mean? So that was the trouble. He was four years. You're absolutely right about when the boom peaked, 99, and the US market peaked right at the end of 99. UK market peaked in March 2000. Um, and they haven't recovered those peaks, by the way. Um, the, but he, that speech, Irrational Exuberance, when he was trying to say it's all going too far, was four years too early. Um, and so maybe that was one of the reasons why he gave up trying to control things and thought, well, I'll just clean up the mess afterwards. Although, of course, the classic central bank position is that you take away the punch bowl just as the party gets going. Um, so early's can be inevitably wrong. Um, or you're not listened to. I mean, um, the, the, I apologise for being uk orientated based on this, but um, the Queen posed a question. She said, why didn't you see it coming? <laughs> and um, John, John Kay, an FT columnist, attempted to answer that, and this is what he said. Um, I believe I would win kudos for my contrarian view when the bubble burst. But on the contrary, people who um, people who never, never want to be told that they're talking nonsense, and they certainly didn't before the bubble burst. They didn't want to be told afterwards, I told you so, you were talking nonsense, and indeed they claim they never were. They never were. And of course, we, we now have lots, uh, you know, back for every person who genuinely did see it coming, we've got, I don't know whether it's 10 or 100 or 200, <laughs> who claim that they also saw it coming. So you get an awful lot of... Um, the Queen's question <laughs> was addressed to, was on a visit to the School of Economics. Yes. So she was asking, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, has it been answered? Well, I suppose some of this, what we can talk about today might answer some of it. Um, I mean, it is, um, it is our job to spot trends, including troublesome ones. Um, so how difficult was it to track growing debt? Well, not very, actually. And you don't need to be a financial expert to do this. Think about the housing market. Um, we went from a typical mortgage, you could get a mortgage if the debt was three times your income, and during the build-up of credit, it went so you could get a mortgage of six times your income. Now, it's not quite that simple because interest rates have come down, inflation had come down, obviously, along with, in parallel with inflation coming down. But nevertheless, it wasn't rocket science, whether it was in a, within a household to see debt building up or actually within sovereigns. And if you also put that together with the idea that you don't end boom and bust, the idea that debt was being built up in a period that everybody knew was benign, at least benign, if not a bubble, then that's not what you do, is it? You should build up your reserves in good times. You don't need to be a rocket scientist or even an economist to know that sort of homely thing, you know, that you don't keep you don't build up your debt in benign times. You build up your reserves. Some of it was difficult. Um, it was some of the debt was complex and dispersed. And actually, um, the central bankers, the, the, the Basel committee, that um, they thought that some of this was reducing risk. That actually, if instead of a bank uh, making a lot of loans, 
and keeping them, and it's itself having a direct exposure to all the losses on its books. It could package them up and sell them on to other people, to, to a dispersed range of people who would then also enjoy the interest being paid on those loans. Um, that this was dispersing risk. Um, but again, you don't. One way I find this easier to understand is that I do a lot of horse riding, and um, there's two ways to be a horse dealer. Um, one of them is extremely risky, and the other one isn't. Uh, the um, the way that isn't risky is that um, you somebody wants to sell their horse, and they use you as a middle person. They bring your horse, the horse to your stable. They pay you to keep it. And when you sell it, they pay you a commission on the price that's paid for it. At no time are you exposed to the changing value of the horse or to loss, or even to losses on the running costs of having the horse, which is quite expensive week by week in a stable. This, what, the other way to do it is extremely risky. You buy a horse because you think it's got a lot of promise and you think you bought it cheaply. You own it yourself, you pay for its keep, you train it, you put in the hours, and you assume you'll sell it for profit. So whether, and of course, how often do you do that? Not as often as you need to, to actually make a profit sustainably. It's extremely risky. And what banks were doing, so the subprime is a good example of that. We, they claim they've gotten switched from an originate and where keep model, buy to hold model, to originate and distribute, and actually they hadn't. They were always warehousing for a, what they believed was going to be a short period. They were always originating the loans and warehousing them. So when the music stopped, they owned the loans, whether it's loans, horses, a fashion retailer's warehouse full of clothes they thought were going to be the next hot fashion but turned out not to be. If you own the stuff and you can't sell it and it goes down in value, you are stuffed. So again, this, these are not difficult concepts, okay? Um, and there's lots of that. It's not just the private equity deals. Um, private equity deals that made a lot of money were ones done in about 2002, 3, 4, still in the depths. Because actually, when the market peaked in around the turn of the millennium, 2000, it then kept going down until 2003. Lots of great deals to be had in 02, 03, 04. You just put a gloss on private equity deals. Uh, the ones that were done in 02, 03, 04. Yeah, what they are. Oh, okay. Um, this is when companies that are on the stock market, um, and in this case, um, the market fell from a peak in 2000, it fell for about three years. So actually, around 2003, you've got, um, you are a firm, a, a lot of institutions have given you money to buy companies as cheaply as possible, take them private, manage a turnaround uh, over a period of three to five years, bring them back and make a profit. And so that, this, is, this is the horse dealing, this is horse dealing in a very grand style. And it's getting it right. I mean, when the, when the horse dealing thing works, when the risking works, it's only, it works very, very well if you genuinely do buy low and sell high. But what people um, uh, underestimate is just how difficult it is to buy low and sell high. But anyway, okay, so you've got private equity, and they also do this with a lot of debt. So you, they would be purchasing something. Has anybody got a mortgage in this room? Gosh, some people actually, <laughs> some young people have got mortgage. Do you know what your, what's the, Right, roughly, when you bought your place, how much of it was debt and how much did you put down as equity? You don't have to answer that. Oh, God. Very roughly, very roughly. <laughs> how much, if, if you calculate it in the end, how much is it now, the debt? You don't, no, just originally, just, just when you first took it. About 90% of the value? No, 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 no. We had 
over half of it was we had it in oh I mean less than half was slow. Oh well okay. So say it was sixty forty. But what private equity was doing is actually saying a lot lots of people do when they buy their homes, particularly their first homes, they sell do more like eighty twenty. Eighty debt to twenty equity. <coughs> yeah. So they were buying cheap and they were taking on a lot of Probably your pension fund. Uh, pension funds, for example, uh, endowments of Oxford University, endowment funds. Every big institutional investor has a small portion of its portfolio allocated to what they call alternative assets, between 5 and 10 percent. And uh, the university superannuation scheme, I haven't looked for a long time, but it's probably got well over £20 billion worth of assets. If you put you know, that's just one fund, say putting two billion maybe to work in alternative assets. So you've got dozens of institutions like that saying, I'm not going to put all my money in the conventional stock market, conventional government bond markets, or even conventional corporate bond markets. I'm going to put some to work, actually, in what they would regard as a higher risk, higher reward scenario, actually outside the regulated space. The point about private is all the regulations that apply to a publicly listed company don't apply. Um, Family offices, sovereign wealth funds, there's, you know, all the money in the world that's held. Insurance companies that take, you know, other, uh, okay. so. Sorry, I, I interrupted your flow. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what I was saying is that they, a good time for them to buy was, in 2003, they were buying companies at three to four times EBITDA. EBITDA is a very high level of profit. That's earnings before interest tax depreciation and amortisation. But they were buying it at, uh, you know, three times. At the, well, at the peak of the boom, 06, 07, eight to ten times. So, you know, it works great when they were buying, genuinely buying cheap and were able to sell expensively because actually when idiots were paying eight to ten times, the people who you know, had done a lot of deals in 03, 04 were actually getting out from floating companies. At that high if they were buying at eight to ten times the rate, then at what rates were they expecting to sell? Well, if what they would have, to be fair, if it's eight to ten times a number, a profit number yes. that you think is very depressed, and that you can turn the company right. around to double it, then you okay. you may think that. So, so they're assuming that the profit number is largely depressed. Yes, and that they can grow. Yeah. For various reasons, they can increase the profits pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, okay. But um, so, so that's just talking about debt. There's other connections. I mean, economic imbalances. One of the, I think one of the most difficult things in financial journalism is, is actually to join up the dots. So you'll have economists writing about the fact that China's producing and exporting and America is running down its savings and importing. Um, but you'll have some other people in the finance or companies team talking about um, Companies, you know, companies running up debt, or, com or companies suffering from import competition, and it's actually quite difficult to join up the dots, and also to join up the dots between that and between American uh, Ch China buying American government bonds in order to help finance all this. So, but having said that, that it's quite difficult, and you need some lateral thinking. The, the again, the concepts aren't that difficult, and you can see the global imbalances, and you can understand why China wants. To ensure that the remnancy is more is fixed against the dollar, and in particular fixed at a very favourable rate that helps their um, exports. Um, the other thing is that, again, joined up thinking, other sets of journalists will have been reporting on the politics, things like um, the ERISA Act in the US and various, a couple of other political moves, 
that made um, put a lot of political pressure on banks to lend to the previously unbanked so that they could buy their homes. If you went to the website of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac um, in the early 2000s, it is a quoted company involved in lending, hugely leveraged. The front page looks like a brochure. It says, the American dream, own your own home. This is a political activity. And so, do people think of it as political or do they think of it, oh, this is funny, wonderful financial institution doing what it does? Um, okay, let's move on. Um, so politics actually, being in silos really is part of, is, is quite a big part of the problem. We've talked about evidence of increased leverage. And then actually the other thing, just one last thing on the, which people could have seen and actually predicted. I remember when um, the euro came in and um, in the capital markets pages of the FT, there was a lot being written about um, getting rid of currency risk, of course, between countries in the Eurozone. Um, but actually, it was never predicted that you'd get rid of credit risk. So the idea was not that Italy could borrow at the same rate as Germany. It was simply that they were, the debt was in euros, so you got rid of the currency risk. It was always assumed that there would be, you would charge Italy, Greece, Portugal, whatever other riffraff you want to let into the Eurozone, more than you would charge Germany. So that didn't happen. So the astonishing thing was just not hanging on to that idea and saying, as spreads on Greek, Spanish, Italian government bonds came down to be very close to German ones, saying, hang on a minute, this isn't how it was supposed to be. Of course, it doesn't help when countries or companies lie about their financial position, which is what Greece did. Yeah. But then actually, isn't that what journalists are here for? But where were the journalists telling us that Greece was lying about its financial position? I would have thought that, again, like subprimes, with subprime it was lots of local journalism was done saying that there was fraud in terms of the loans being done and that there was perverse incentives for mortgage brokers. Uh, mortgage brokers to bring um, people, people to banks who, who could be charged higher rates of interest, but who actually were really not credit worthy. Some of the things which I think make us a bit lazy. Well, no, no, lazy is the wrong word, is it, actually? Because actually we all work terribly hard. So time's short, particularly if you... I mean, how many of you work... How many works, people work for daily papers or daily operations on websites? Uh, weeklies? Monthlies? Then everybody else is a reader? Yeah. <laughs> Consumer rather than... Consumer. Yeah. But, but, okay, well, of those who are... Uh, at the coal face, the majority work for dailies or, or website. You know, you, you have you have this. You have to feed the engine, don't you? It's like you know, shoveling coal into an absolutely uh, enormous boiler. That uh, you know. So um, time is short. So actually, what journalists tend to do is they tend just to follow things, they follow the boom. Um, I don't know what it was like in your countries, but in the UK there was all sorts of ghastly programmes like location, location, location. You know. That, in it's terms of encouraging people yeah. to still there, encouraging people to buy homes, yeah. um, you know, programs showing you that you know, buy a buy a ruined house, spend, don't worry about spending lots of money doing it up because you'll sell sell it for a profit, way beyond whatever you spend on all that sort of stuff. Um, we loved all that. Uh, journalists love interviewing the rich and famous. Actually, more slightly more sinister and a bit more covert. Um, journalists, of course, benefit benefit from increased advertising spending. It gives you more editorial space, all those lovely supplements, special reports and so on. And that means more jobs. So we are, even though we're all terribly po-faced about being completely, never being influenced by an advertiser, completely separate from advertising, 
we actually like it when there's plenty of advertising coming in. At the FT, um, which is one of the most po-faced newspapers in the world, um, it's 75% um, advertising or commercial income and 25% subscriptions. They've changed it recently, but that's you know, try and pretend that we don't really, you know, we don't care at all if advertising goes. It, it may not be an up-to-date figure, but when I, you know, it, it, it was about, when I was, it was roughly 75% money coming from advertising and other commercial sources, and only 25% from subscriptions, and that's for a paper that's always been expensive on newsstands. The so, average in Britain is about 50-50. Is it? Well, the FT maybe. So the FT is, is, is more at the American end, yes. Mm. Okay, um, but then there is, but there is some laziness, obviously. I've talked about the lack of joined-up thinking, um, which actually in a paper like this, you know, like the FT, even, it's a specialist paper, but even so, the contacts and sort of interchange of ideas between the front half of the paper, you know, with all sort of economics and politics, Actually, this has got better, and, and Lionel Barber, Richard Lambert and Lionel Barber are brilliant editors on this, don't they, to try and minimise it. Where's it gone? Anyway, you know what the front page actually looks like, you know, and then the companies and market section. There's just never enough contact between the people who write about economic, economics and politics and the people who write about companies and markets, uh, or the people between the Lex team and the leader writers and anybody else, um, So, which is sad. So we don't do the joined-up thinking very well. Um, and we, don't, there's a page of the sums, and I'm, I'd love to hear some of your views on this. Um, is there anybody in this room who has, I know some of you have done some economics, but is there anybody in this room who would regard, who's done maths or regards themselves as new, who regards themselves as numerate, who's really comfortable as numbers? Two. No, 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 four. And you're not students. Four. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, yeah, I'm okay with numbers. I'm not scared of What's that. your background? My education yeah, yeah. background? Um, I graduated with history. Oh, well, Margaret, so did I. So, um, <laughs> that's it, historians are... <laughs> we can do anything. <laughs> okay, um, but um, there's... And I've taught a lot of journalists over the years, you know, all of them who've opted to work for a financial newspaper, and even in those circumstances, I would say at least half of them have been afraid of numbers. Um, even though numbers aren't very difficult, actually. Um, we were talking earlier about just doing a quick, you know, thumbnail view of a private equity deal. You know, is it 80% debt, 20% equity? Are they buying it at three times profits or eight times profits? These are not difficult concepts, you know, the same, are they? Um, and yet, mm, um, so, and, and what I find all the time is that um, people like to focus on the profit and loss account and not on the balance sheets. Uh, sometimes that doesn't matter. Funny enough, with media, where, where the balance sheets are useless for reflecting the internet, they don't reflect intellectual property very well. So the FT, for example, is owned by Pearson. It's not on Pearson's balance sheet because it's an organically generated goodwill. Which I could bore you. I could bore for Britain on accounting, but. Um, That's changing. <laughs> the international accounting financial standards are changing that, forcing them to value them. They're not actually, they're yeah. still shying away from yeah. putting intangible assets, organic ones, on the balance sheet. Yeah. They keep fiddling about with the quiet ones. Um, so that's what, but, so, but with other companies, banks is a classic example. A bank is a balance sheet company. 
it's putting its balance sheet to work. Everything that it's at, you know, you, you look at the bank, it's got these enormous assets, enormous liabilities, that's what it is. And you worry that it's got other enormous assets and enormous liabilities off balance sheet. You could almost forget, if you were analysing the bank, you could almost forget about the PL and just look at the balance sheet. Um, so, but even so, and actually with banks, HSBC notoriously, although I think rather wonderfully, has a 400 page annual report. Roughly half of it is notes to the is the actual financial numbers with lots of notes to the account. HSBC is a very comp big company. It's in, I don't know, it's in 100 countries. It would certainly be in you know, the best part of that. It's uh, an investment bank. Um, it's a commercial bank. It's a personal bank. It's a wealth manager. Um, it's for some insurance. You know, this is, it's in many countries and in many lines of business. What do we expect? And actually, in the back there, it will tell you all sorts of things now about its assets. You can see it'll have a list of all the countries whose sovereign debt it has. This is marvellous, actually. Um, so it's, oh, it actually, um, it's a bit complicated, but there is quite a lot of information available. Um, and then there's just the business ignorance. This is sort of, um, you know, say, people tend to look at the top line because that's what companies are directly towards. But um, you know, this is a very easy thing to remember: sales are vanity, profits are sanity, and cash is reality. <laughs> and the reason you can tell there's a very easy way to tell whether a company is cash generative or not. If its debt is going up, it's not, and if it's going down, it is. So you know that's how you can tie some of these together. Um, but skepticism again: this is where there's no such thing as a stupid question. is very, very important. If you don't understand it. Um, then the, the, you have to ask the company or the government or the treasurer of whatever to explain it to you. And if they can't, that's a very bad sign. But what I've tended to find is the more, the more senior the people, the better they explain it. Um, more than that, bro. <laughs> in that no, case, really? I think the problem is not the financial or the income statement. Everybody you know, can understand it. The problem is the risk measurement. And the risk measurements, evaluate risk, volatility versus different types of risk in the balance sheet, in income statement, in the cash flow, in the goodwill, not even boards understand it. Okay? The board gets a presentation of somebody and they approve something which they don't understand. But this uh, is the yeah, problem. Um, you're because you're you know, right. Do you, do you understand evaluate risk? Uh, yes, but I understand, most, most importantly, I understand the big problem with it. Which is that the data? It's they're based. The models tend to be based on very short runs of data in products, necessarily yeah. short because the products are so new. You don't have a decent historical set. But we are being, you know, when you're going to a board meeting with a 186-page Excel spreadsheet with only numbers, to ask you to approve it. Well, that's why. Okay. That's where journalists have this fantastic advantage. They'll say, you know, I don't care how big the spreadsheet is, if you only have a data set that goes back for three years because you, you only invented the bloody product three years ago, you know, how can you know that the value at risk, that, the, that you've measured the risk correctly because you've obviously not, it's not been tested in every circumstance that anybody can think of? Well, the basic assumption obviously that not. volatility is the same as risk is not quite so easy. Okay, no? it's, so you've got... We just assume it, but no, there's no proof. Um, Okay, Again, I'm going to ask you to keep going because okay, otherwise we won't get to the end. Yeah. There won't be time for everybody to ask questions. Just so we'll just the rapid reaction. I, I, we are good at this. I mean, we all love the special pages. 
you know, the special programs. If you've got, if you're running a website, you've got limitless space to just stick stuff up, analysing um, the particular point of the crisis. And if you're a news editor, you, you can sort of build, you know, teams that you pull together and direct it to answering the questions about what went wrong and so on. Uh, this is when your contact books really come into their own. You know, something goes wrong. It's your call that somebody in particular will take, um, and so on. And you've got, you've also got specialists on hand to write the instance analysis. Um, not just in fine. I, mean, I just remember the FT bit, which is brilliant. Um, not just in financial on, on days of financial crisis, but I remember when a ferry sank in the river um, outside the FT building, and within two hours we had probably written a small paperback book about it. Um, it was uh, not for the people who drowned, sorry. We, we're vultures, aren't we? Well, I'm, I, you know, I can't help being vultures. Um, you know, you have the new angle. Um, I mean, my definition of a scoop, which is not mine actually, it's the best news editor I work with at the FT, is all, all you need is one new fact, and then you can pull in the other stuff you know. Or even one new half fact. That's all you need. People like Robert Peston really understand this. Um, and good stories make good journalists. You know, it's when people prove they can react quickly and uh, you know get the stuff out. Do we go too far? Um, it's interesting. I don't think we go too. So sometimes we are accused of being irresponsible. Um, the, the good, the example in the UK that's always quoted is that when Robert Peston um, told. Oh, was it News at Ten or no, so. the Ten, the BBC the version of you know BBC Evening News? Yes. That um, Northern Rock, um, a building society, home, um, that actually was um, a market leader in new mortgages, um, that it had gone to the Bank of England for emergency assistance. The next, from that minute, people started queuing to get their money out. Now he's, he was accused of being irresponsible. Um, it was actually one of the best scoops ever. It was just—it was true. What is? How can you, somebody be irresponsible if they report the truth? Um, what the Bank of England was doing was they had made the decision to extend the emergency assistance um, and they thought they were faffing around and they thought they could announce it a couple of days later. So this was happening on a Thursday, I think, Thursday night queues on a Friday and they thought they could announce it on Monday morning and <coughs> give themselves time to sort of do a bit of organisation. I suppose probably give Northern Rock time to maybe get a, its website um, up to speed. Maybe but, take their own savings out. <laughs> well, that's, that's a wonder, that's, that's a journalist for you, wonderfully cynical. There is no, the more cynical the better. Um, so, but they couldn't keep it secret. This is, this is silly. And actually, I'm, I'm astonished that even in the, the finance bill that's been published in the last fortnight in the UK, there's, there's a section on covert, being able to have a covert operation to support a bank. Um, even though the people who would be involved in taking that decision are not just people, you know, one or two people at the bank, but uh, people at the Treasury as well. I mean, once you let politicians in, I mean, there is no hope of keeping it secret. So, um, you know, so he was just doing his job. And the, pr the problem was um, a completely inadequate deposit protection scheme in the UK, not Robert Peston. And that, that's been, that, the deposit protection scheme has now been, you know, more than doubled and 100% is protected, and you can get it out instantly. So, you know, that there was all sorts of problems, not so generous. Um, now, there's, there's an interesting question as to whether we, you know, are we, do we do overdue dose on the uh, doom and gloom? I think, the what, what, journalists are human, so we, we join in the euphoria on the way up, and we probably do 
enjoying the pessimism on the way down. Um, so yes, and I think it's worth standing back sometimes and thinking about this as to what extent you're just getting sucked into the group think and making sure that in trying to be balanced, and I hope you know you try to be balanced, that you quite often get in contrarian views, including optimists um, at this time, when most people are pessimists. Um, but the, even worse, this actually comes back to this to the VAR point, lack of, lack of perspective, short memories, even of recession. Um, when, um, I mean, you, many places went into a deep recession in um, 08, 09. Um, and I was thinking, how many reporters were around for the previous recession? Well, in the UK, they'd have had to have been around in sort of the late 80s, early 90s. Not many people just continued to be reporters for the best part of 20 years. They moved on to running supplements or something else. And, writing leaders, but they're not actually reporting on the ground. So I think there's a big problem with short memories. But even without, you don't, even without a short memory, I mean, recessions aren't new. And actually this whole idea, you know, as I said, it was silly to think we'd abolish boom and bust. Bust means recession. So, you know, sometimes I think they're sort of, ooh, it's a recession and we can't survive, you know. I mean, nobody's died, have they, actually, in this whole crisis? If you want to put the whole thing in perspective, um, and actually some of you have, uh, do work in places where people have died for other reasons, but this is, you know, the financial crisis itself hasn't killed anybody, so it's just made people tighten their bills. So, <laughs> let's get a bit of perspective. <laughs> I beg to differ. <laughs> a lot of people are going with their heat, going on food, going turfed out of their houses. It's hitting a lot of people, very harshly. Some of them are dying or Yeah. The but that's a recession. Yeah, but that's what's everybody yeah. I'm not saying it, I'm not saying it's benign and we shouldn't worry about it. I'm just saying it's not. It isn't what's going on in places like Egypt, is it? No. Where would you rather be, cutting your fuel bills in the UK or in Syria? There will be time to take yeah. issue with you and, um, and, and exercise proper scepticism. Um, the other thing is we love sound bites. I mean, the, the, the bank is paying. There's been a huge amount of dumbing down on this. Um, when you know, Steve, Stephen Hess's pay package was reported in, originally as if he was going to get a million pounds in cash, just like that. Actually, it was going to be all in shares. It was going to be deferred, and some of it would be, you know, it could be clawed back. There's been a huge effort to reform the way that bonuses are paid. Apparently, worth nothing because nobody can be bothered to do the something a bit more subtle than just, ooh, you know, shouldn't pay anything at all. Um, anyway, I think going with the flow is not good enough, actually, on these things, and um, that's what probably one of the worst things that Germans do. So let's just move on to a few slides on the running story. I mean, so, and I just picked three strands here. One is first the stock and desk crisis, the next is um, re-regulation banks, and the final one is um, crisis of capitalism. The, of other aspects. I mean, in the sovereign debt, debt crisis, um, again, you've got, there's so many twists in the story. I mean, if you're interested in politics, then obviously in Greece, one of the most fascinating things is the idea that, that um, a technocrat would be put in charge of the Greek budget. Or now there's a wonderful idea that you that the money, the IMF money or the European money will be put into an escrow account and will be used to pay the interest on the debt to bondholders, and not used to pull down the black hole that is Greek public finances. 
So you've got this, these are big sovereignty questions. So what starts off as um, a country who's making a loss every year and running up even greater and greater debts also becomes, obviously, it's an enormous political story, particularly in a country which is, um, uh, has a very painful history of um, occupation. Where one of my friends who's an expert on Greece said that every, every Greek regards it as their patriotic duty not to pay tax because taxes go to the occupying power. So, you know, these, these are some of the examples of the, of the way, the angles on the story. Um, obviously, underneath that, you've got the economic issues, you've got the recession and the, and the genuine pain that that causes, of course. Um, and you've got the financial stability issue. I mean, there's. Um, See, one of the things that fascinates me about this is that um, there's sort of uh, there's a classic school of thought about how you solve uh, a financial crisis, and actually the Swedes were wonderful exemplars of this um, in about in the 1990s, which is that um, you go through the bank's balance sheets, you go through this enormous pile of assets, you take a really cold, sober, objective look at the value of it, you write it all down, the banks take the losses, and you move on. What's the problem with that? What, how, do you, how do you actually take a loss? What does it mean, take losses? You have to have the reserves, the net assets built up in order to take the losses. Otherwise, you become insolvent. So actually, it, there's no, you can do that exercise, and obviously there's been lots of stress tests and lots of efforts to do it. But if in the end, you cut the banks aren't strong enough to take the losses, all you do is say they become insolvent, the government will have to step in and take a stake to refinance, for refinancing, putting equity in. Um, and then, the go oh my goodness, which what governments? Oh, sh sugar. Um, they haven't got any money to put in. So actually, so that's classically what you do. You take a very, then you get it all in one hit and you move on. Sweden was good. South Korea was actually quite good at that as well. Japan was terrible at it, but actually not because they were being stupid. No, people aren't stupid in these occasions. It's because they knew that their the losses were so huge after the Japanese bubble burst, you couldn't take them all in one go. And so what you had there was banks, they would build up their balance sheets, build up their reserves so they could take another wave of losses by writing down, you know, you've got value of something starts at 100% of what you paid for it, then you write it down to 80% of face value and then 60 and then, you know, you hope it's, you get something back. Um, Japanese banks couldn't do it, and so they salami-sized it. And they would do things like two banks would merge to have a bigger balance sheet to take some losses and so on. And if you have an, um, it's historically, if you have a big property price bubble, um, a big asset price bubble um, that dwarfs perhaps the GDP of the country, then you're much more likely to have to do it that way than to be able to do what the Swedes did and take it in more or less one hit. Okay. Uh, but in amongst all this, you need the reporting on the ground. I mean, one thing that, with, in Greece, the mid, and let's talk about the era, the mid, mid all this sort of, much of the reporting of this is sort of, actually journalists almost being too responsible. They all think, ooh, we don't want to be influencing what's going on in a way that makes it more likely that Greece leaves the euro, because what everybody's trying to do, apparently, to solve this crisis is to get, get Greece, Italy, Portugal, Ireland and um, so on from Spain to, to be resolved while, without leaving the euro. But actually, if you were in Greece and you keep being told, oh, if you go back to the drachma, it will be absolutely terrible, you'll have to pay, you know, the price of an imported television will be much higher, so on. Well, 
I mean, I don't know much about Greece, but the only time, one of the times I've been there, one of the things that amazes me about it is Athens is a huge city, but at Easter, everybody clears off to the villages that they came from. So they can live like a city, but presumably, where it's more of a disaster if uh, prices go up, or they can live in villages. And that's very, I don't know, but if I was news editing now, I would want to know to what extent can Greece suddenly become self, you know, could they, could they be much more self-sufficient or self-reliant or change, adapt, be much more adaptable than we think, bearing in mind they've had these crises time and again in their history. So, you know, we've got this sort of top-down economic consensus, uh, solve the Greek crisis without them leaving the euro, which means still means huge amounts of austerity, huge paid cuts, unemployment, and so on, and the debt still goes up. Or, you know, well, would, would, what would devaluation actually mean on the ground? Um, you've got the vendor financing element. What, um, there's been fantastic, very, very interesting pieces written by very senior people in Germany about all this. None of them says, um, we funded the Greeks and the Spanish and so on. To, you know, we, we lent to them in order for them to run up these deficits, in order for them to import our goods. And we know that we've had a huge advantage because they haven't devalued. Nobody in Germany says that, but actually that's, also, that's just as good a perspective of well, an angle on it. Nobody's saying that. So it's just trying to find these different um, angles. Running story two, great re-regulation of banks and markets. Uh, I've got a hook, again, more point on this, but um, sounds terribly arcane, more and better capital. But uh, one of the things that intrigues me here, and it's just a journalistic question, which I haven't seen answered properly, is that um, we've... I've talked about how in order to be able to take, take losses, and we're expecting to have waves of losses perhaps over a number of years, banks have to build up their reserves. And they can do that either by equity issues, or they can do it by retaining profits. Um, there's a number of ways they can do it by selling assets. There's a number of ways they can do it. Um, and the Basel process, which actually quadrupled the minimum capital requirement, is supposed to take until 2019. And I think the judgment on that was that they'd done the right thing, they'd gone for a fairly rigorous reform, but a fairly rigorous reform, but they'd said let's take a number of years to get there because to impose it all now at a time when all the banks are weak and the economies are weak would restrict restrict credit to the real economy by too much. Then all of a sudden you've got the EBA with European Banking Authority weighing in saying you've got to get to nine percent quarter one by next by July which is almost as far as Basel's envisaging by between 2015 and 2019 in various different ways. Why, why are they trying to accelerate this just at a time? And I, the, nobody's written about this properly. The only reason I can think of is they're very, very afraid of enormous sovereign debt losses to come. And so they're, having, they're saying, although it's a terrible time, if you don't get your balance sheets up to at least this level, you won't, even be, able to, you won't be able to take the first, the next wave of losses. But it's, you know, again, it's not being it's not being explained properly, and that's, you know, you don't have to read the whole of the Basel three proposals in order to ask some simple questions like that and get a reporter to try and answer it. Um, and so there's all sorts of nonsense. I mean, there's this um, banks and insurance are being forced to buy more government bonds because they're regarded as high quality liquid assets. Well, you know, the concept of a risk-free rate is obviously um, being questioned. And quite a few investors now say that RFR stands for risk-free return instead of 
sorry, return-free risk instead of risk-free rate. Again, these, these things aren't really being tackled properly, this whole idea of um, waiting. And then just this last point, you know, everybody thinks derivatives, put them, they go through extensions, they go through central clearing, and central clearing there's collateral against it, so you've got your little pocket of reserves in case something goes wrong so other people get paid. The central counterparties, the central clearers become nodes of risk. Too big to, they will be too big, too, well, not too, literally too interconnected to fail because there will be the big connection in the middle. So you have to, you know, all this stuff. And then finally, the crisis of capitalism. Well, journalists love to pontificate, or a certain breed of them do. The FT is actually particularly well endowed with people who like to pontificate. About a three week supplement about the yeah. three week survey of the crisis of capitalism. Going on and on and on. But, yeah. um, it, and uh, there's been a lot of very. Actually, um, somebody wrote a letter, a rather sniffy letter, saying, actually, very few of these pieces are really they're, they're, are really talking about fundamentals. They're talking about sort of tinkering and you know tightening up regulation or being disapproving of what bankers do. But they aren't fundamentally. So one of the few I read, few ones I read that did really question something, pose something fundamental was I think it was Robert Reich who said that um, we're all we've got a big tussle going on within ourselves and within societies between um, the. Uh, consumer and employee side in us and the taxpayer and the investor in us. And for many years it's been the taxpayer and the, and the investor who've benefited. Taxpayer through lower taxes because of what were apparently um, relatively benign times for public, the public sector deficit. Um, and investors because you know, we were getting dividends and uh, we didn't have a recession for a long time and so on. And if we didn't invest, if, invest in the banking sector actually, you know, can do too badly. But actually as employees, as we know, um, middle class incomes have stagnated for, what, 20 years? I mean, it's one of the big issues in the US. Um, and that was hidden by people taking wealth out of their houses for a while. But, so, you know, how, how often are we really, if we're going to do these series, then please, let's, let's do some fundamental um, debates on this. Um, Independence of central bankers from political pressure is another big issue. It's amazing how so-called independent central banks are actually doing the work of governments. We're keeping interest rates very, very low is what governments want them to do, because that's that's the way that they don't screw all, all the citizens who are over, still over indebted, and and all businesses that are over indebted. And then you've got this issue. This is a are we going through another phase like the 1970s, and I'm old enough to remember the 1970s, um, where business is just out of fashion? Everybody hates business, and that actually ends up being rather bad for the economy. And then, but then you get the you know, shareholders aren't doing the job, but is the government better at doing it? Well, with banks, you've got the government now, in some cases, some case setting pay, saying whether or not dividends can be paid, um, saying whether or not assets have to be sold off or not. But you know, what are, what are the boards for there for? So that's actually a complete loss of trust. Um, as somebody was saying, it, it loss of trust in the boards. Um, <coughs> Let's come back and discuss that in your question. Yeah. <laughs> and then you've got, uh, is this the last one? Just the last couple of slides. You've got okay. some news desk issues to do with organisation, and you've got finally, you know, your ultimate duty. Could you just go through these last two? Yeah. And since they've broadened out the issue, and just yeah. do that in the next three to four minutes? Yeah. <laughs> so news desk issues. Um, you obviously need to be proactive. Um, I think it's like getting ahead of the government. The thing I said about Greece, I don't, I don't know what people are actually thinking in Greece about how they would put up 
survive a devaluation. But that's, you know, that's what people should be reporting on, not endlessly reaffirming the aim, which is to keep them in the euro. You know, you have to be aware of knee-jerk reactions. What else? You need to think about what's influencing you. And I think that Gillian um, Tech's very strong in this group think. You should need to be always aware that we're all victims or subject to groupthink and just try and stand outside and sometimes think, why am I going along with this? Why aren't I asking the, you know, it's like not seeing the elephant in the room. And then you also need to think actually about who you want to influence, which will depend on your publication's stance. Um, then just practical things about building the team. I mean, investigation does take time. I put, I mean, research support might sound a little bit detailed, but actually, far too often in financial journalism, people don't know how to use things like data stream or don't have a, a stats team who can look up, just look up the numbers. They're not difficult numbers, but you need to look up the numbers. But, you know, whether it's GDP growth rates, whether it's um, leverage ratios and so on. So you, they need some research support. Not everybody has to be a journalist. And you also have to focus. So if you, it's very easy to set up these investigative teams and they don't produce any stories. They just keep researching. So, you know, we've all been there. Don't tell me about it. Write it. Um, so, you know, there has to be, there have to be set certain questions that you want them to answer and within a certain deadline, even though you take them off diary. Uh, and then we've talked about this. Yeah. Okay, and then putting the readers first. Um, this is, I mean, one of the keys to, uh, to this is um, what I've always called the three A's. If, if you are a trusted publication, you have authority, which means both with the readers, but it also means you have some authority with the people you're writing about, and that gives you very briefly access, and that's what enables you to build up the contacts and so on to get the scoops and to get the best analysis. Unbiased and balanced. Well, my fellow history graduate will know that there's no such thing as unbiased reporting. Um, but you try, and actually where you know you can't be, let the readers know, and, and give them enough information to make their own minds up. I mean, one of the things that, I mean, probably every, in every issue of the FT, I will read a story that I'm very interested in, and it will leave out, but I'll find one story in each issue at least that will leave out a key fact that I need to make my own mind up. So it could be a big debt issue, but say it's, and they don't actually tell me the interest that's being charged on it. You know, just drives me out. Perspective, putting these into context. I mean, this is this whole thing about, you know, recession. If it's your experience in your first recession, you think it's the end of the world. Well, it's not. People have been through these things before. Um, and stats can help with that. Just a quick example of that. There was a lot of fuss, it can be a few years ago, about knife crime killing young men in London. If anybody had bothered to look up the stats, the chances of, a, of an 18 to 25 year old youth being killed by a knife, it would, I would have been surprised if it was in the top five. They, cars, drink, um, all sorts of, uh, suicide probably would have been ahead of, in terms of you know, dying in that age range, it would have been ahead of being knifed. So you know, there, there was no perspective on that story. Ask the question, and then just at the bottom, I mean, what you're, what you're striving for, for, on behalf of the reader, is the knowledge of an insider, but the attitude of an outsider, and it's very difficult to get those two things right. Jane, thank you very much indeed.